Hello, everyone. This is Jacob here. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all the weirdest and craziest episodes throughout military history. So uh, just a couple announcements before we begin the second episode of our series, Five Wars You Never Heard Of. I just want to go ahead and let you guys know that the podcast is now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Player FM, Podchaser, and the iHeartRadio Network. So if you consume any of your podcasts on that platform, go ahead and give us a follow. Like, comment, subscribe. Our ratings and reviews are also very appreciated. Uh, help us out in the algorithm a lot. So, yeah, go ahead and look us up, guys. So, we're going to go ahead and talk about the War of the Golden Stool, also known as the first, I'm sorry, the fifth Anglo-Ashanti War. So, there's a lot of Anglo-Ashanti wars. So, uh, now, just to go ahead and give you guys some background. So, the Ashanti are an ethnic group in West Africa. Uh, the Ashanti Empire existed from roughly about 1701 to 1901, so about 200 years, occupied most of Ghana as well as parts of the Ivory Coast and Togo. So this brought them into conflict with the British Empire as they were expanding into the Gold Coast area. And the British was primarily interested in, of course, the gold, because of course they were, and uh, as well as the palm oil, which was used to grease the you know kind of factory engines of their uh, industrialization period. So... The Ashanti, though, were an incredibly warlike state. Uh, due to their fact that they were a very centralized country, they were able to field actually very large armies, you know, for for the African you know continent. So, and from about the beginning of the nineteenth century to about like the end of the quarter of nineteenth century, they're on relatively equal footing. There wasn't this massive technology gap uh, between the African states and the European powers yet. That technology gap would start to develop as the um, Europeans brought in bridge loading rifles as well as um, Maxim guns as well, you know, machine guns. But as of right now, they're on relatively equal footing with the British. And this led to their uh, first victory during the First Anglo-Ashanti War, in which the Ashanti managed to ambush a 500-man British force under the command of Sir General, or General Sir Charles McCarthy. And uh, they wiped out the entire force of the Battle of uh, Sam Cow, which... I apologize to any African listeners. I, I'm i going to butcher probably a lot of these African names. And so they killed that entire force along with Sir, uh, General Sir Charles McCarthy. And they transformed his skull into a gold-trimmed drinking cup, which is so fucking metal. Like, I love it. And I also have to think that surely during the negotiations, like afterwards, like when they're coming with the peace treaties and then like ensuing negotiations afterwards, surely they used, you know, like, you know, McCarthy's, you know, like skull and everything as like a cup, like for like a toast, you know, they're like, here guys, like have a toast, you know, like drink from the cup. Why are you guys crying? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to believe that that, that happens. So now they, they managed to win the first couple of wars against the British, but um, despite their initial success, they're eventually worn down by British supplies and technology over the coming decades. And eventually they're forced into a protectorate status in 1897 after a few less than successful wars against the British. So this brings us to the War of the Golden Stool. So the next year in 1898, the British started building a railway from the coast to the Ashanti capital of Kamasi. And the railway was scheduled to be completed by 1903. So this railway meant that there's going to be more... British involvement in the country, uh, or in the, in the Ashanti Empire. So, a little bit of background on the Golden Stool. So, the Ashanti had a Golden Stool that acted as a throne to the Ashanti kings and was viewed as sacred by many Ashantis. The stool was 18 inches high, 24 inches long, and 12 inches wide, and it was covered in all sorts of gold ornaments. So, 
This wasn't just any stool, though. To the Ashantis, it was literally the spiritual and the metaphysical embodiment of the nation. So to them, it contained the stool, contained the soul of the Ashanti people. So according to oral tradition, the golden stool descended from the sky, the behest of the Ashanti high priest, and landed at the feet of Osei Tutu I, the first king of the Ashanti Empire. Now, it was never allowed to touch the ground, and no ruler was allowed to actually sit on it. So they literally had, the kings had servants actually lower them just above the stool to the point to where they were sitting just like they were kind of hovering just a few inches above the actual stool itself. So they weren't even even allowed to actually sit in the stool, just give an idea about how important it was. Uh, they also consulted the golden stool before going to war as well. So the, probably the closest thing I can comp- compare it to in our own history, you know, me being an American, I'd say I probably would compare it to like the Declaration of Independence would be probably the closest thing. But instead of Nicolas Cage trying to steal it, we have the British in this instance. So, because naturally when you have something that's owned by a foreign country that has incredible value and uh, sacred, you know, spirit to it, naturally the British are going to want to steal it. I mean, that's what they do. So, in 1801, Frederick Hudson, the governor of the Gold Coast Colony, launched an expedition to Kamasi to capture the Golden Stool. Believe it, that if, if he could acquire the stool, he could actually govern the country effectively, kind of getting the Ashanti to finally submit to British rule. So, What's funny about this is that you can almost kind of view his search for the Golden, golden Stool as a bit of an obsession for Hodgson, because this wasn't the first time that he tried to actually get the Golden Stool. So a few years earlier, he launched an expedition with a few hundred men to try to find it. And so and the Ashanti aren't stupid. Like, they didn't just leave the Golden Stool in the like the capital for the British to find it. They would just kind of shuttle it from place to place, you know, like if anyone was trying to steal it. So the British went to this village, and they found this, like, 13-year-old kid and this kid told them, like, oh, yeah, I know where the golden stool is. And then he just, like, led them on a wild goose chase across Ashanti land. He'd bring them to these villages. And before the British got there, he'd be like, guys, like, these fucking white people are looking for the golden stool. Like, go ahead and hide it. And instead, they would just, like, show it to somewhere else. So, of course, Hodgson never found it. So this leads us to 1901. So he launched another expedition to find the golden stool. And uh, he marched a small force of British soldiers to Kamasi and received it very cordially by the Ashanti. They had a little small children's choir singing God Save the Queen and uh, were overall like very nice to them when they came up. So naturally, Hodgson wanted to immediately erode all of his goodwill. So he made a speech demanding the stool be turned over, saying, quote, Your king, the I, is in exile and will not return to Ashanti. His power and authority will be taken over by the representatives of the Queen of Britain. The terms of the 1874 Peace Treaty of Femina, uh, which required you to pay for the cost of the 1874 war, have not been forgotten. You have to pay with interest the sum of £160,000 a year. Then there is a matter of the golden stool of Ashanti. The queen is entitled to the stool. She must receive it. Where is the golden stool? I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this ordinary chair? Why would you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kamasi to bring the golden stool for me to sit upon? However, you may be quite sure that though the government has not received the golden stool at its hands, it will rule over you with the same impartiality and fairness as if you had produced it. So... This speech went over about as well as you'd expect it. Witnesses described that it was received with complete deafening silence. And uh, then the Ashanti chiefs went home and immediately started preparing for war. So, the Queen Mother, Ya Asentewa, who was the Queen of Ashanti, gave a speech rallying the Ashanti, stating, quote, Now I have seen that some of you fear to go forward to fight for a king. If it were in the brave days, the days of Osai Tutu, Konfo Anokye, and Opakuware, Chiefs would not sit down and see their king taken away without firing a shot. 
No foreigner could have dared to speak to a chief of the Ashanti in the way the governor spoke to your chief this morning. Is it true that the bravery of the Ashanti is no more? I cannot believe it. Cannot be. I must say this. If you, the men of Ashanti, will not go forward, then we will. We, the women, will. Just call upon my fellow women. We will fight. We will fight till the last of us falls in the battlefields. So, immediately just going into it. Now, as Kevin Cecil Armitage, <laughs> which... Like, you're going to hear a lot of very, like, 19th century British, like, names in this, like, episode, which is quite funny. Like, I just imagine tea and crumpets, like, every time in some, like, big mustachioed man, you know, with, who's, like, you know, has the giant belly. I just imagine them saying this, or I just imagine these types of people want to read their names. So, Captain Siege Armitage searches and bushes for the stool. Uh, he and his men were then ambushed by Shanta warriors and forced to retreat to the stockade in Kamasi. So this stockade was constructed specifically for this very reason to kind of shelter Europeans and other white people in case of like, you know, you know, a rebellion or something or other. So, but it wasn't very big though. It's only about 50 yards wide and had about 12 foot stone walls. I uh, defended the stockade were 18 Europeans, dozen or so mixed race colonial administrators and around 500 adherents from the Husa tribe uh, and were armed with six field artillery pieces and four Maxim guns. So, the Shanti opposed the siege, and all roads leading out of the fort were blocked by wooden stockades. Now, Hodgson managed to send for reinforcements via telegraph, and on April 19, 1900, a force of 100 Husa troops under command of Captain James Middlebist and George Marshall, again with these 19th century names, uh, arrived in the fort, seemingly encountering no resistance from the Ashanti. Believing that his forces would not face much resistance, Hodgson then decided to launch a breakout attempt with 150 men on April 23rd, attempt to destroy the Ashanti camps. He was henceforth ambushed, suffering four men and 48 wounded. Could have seen that one coming. They retreated back to the fort, and the Ashanti cut the telegraph wires. The Ashanti then started attacking Christian communities in Kamasi, and the refugees fled into the fort. Swiss missionaries Frederick and Rose Ramsier were allowed in, but their African converts were forced to carry outside the walls under the protection of the machine guns. So, wow. Great, uh, yeah, great job protecting your flock, guys. Like, wow. What pricks. So... Now, another 150-man force of Nigerian allies managed to break into the fort, but they were battered and wounded from Ashanti ambushes and left behind all their ammo and heavy weapons, making them really more of a liability than they actually were. Like, you know, so at this point, the war is just going very swimmingly for the British, as you can tell. So, recognizing that they were in a powerful position with thousands of their soldiers in the field, the Ashanti decided to offer terms of surrender. So these terms were as follows. Uh, their exiled King Primpe I, who was exiled during the previous war, will be returned to the throne. Uh, number two, all Europeans were to be expelled from Ashanti land. Number three, British demands for forced labor were to be dropped. And number four, slavery was to be restored. So, I could definitely get behind the first three, certainly. Slavery, uh, yeah, not so much, guys. So, but this goes to show you, though, that in uh, military history and history in general, there's rarely... Uh, black and white, you know, good versus evil is usually shades of gray. And uh, so, uh, meanwhile, while peace talks were held, there was brief troops, uh, I'm sorry, truce, uh, but of course these uh, these terms would have been completely humiliating for the British at the time, who were trying to compete with other European powers during the scramble for the land in Africa. And then so they completely refused to concede to any of the Ashanti demands, and the war began again in earnest. So, Four relief columns were all launched to save the defenders of the stockade. And now the first and smallest one succeeded in bringing in food and ambush the defenders. The remaining three were all ambushed and forced to retreat, predictably. So, uh, meanwhile, though, the Ashanti were content to serve 
the defenders out. Uh, you know, they recognize that if they try to actually charge the fort, the machine guns are going to tear them to pieces. So they decided just, you know, like, oh, we'll just go ahead and wait for these guys to starve. Like, they're not getting much food anyway. So uh, by mid-June, food was running low, so Hodgson set an amount to yet another breakout attempt. Uh, the residents healthy enough to walk, exited the fort, and marched towards the allied forts of Inquad on the coast. Uh, with the troops were numerous civilians, including those who were carrying all of the governor's belongings. So, well, this guy, he's just uh, he's a real winner here. Just like, you know, not only does he start the war, he also forces just random civilians to fucking carry around his fucking personal desk. <laughs> like, they're being trailed by thousands of bloodthirsty Ashanti warriors. But, strangely enough, though, like, if you look throughout, like, you know, British military history, this is actually a very common thing. Like, throughout kind of the colonial period, like, I, like I remember reading about during the American Revolution, like, British commanders would just fucking, like, the, the upper like, upper crust guys would bring their, like, desks and, like, fucking, like, pianos and violins along with them when they're, like, campaigning out in the middle of the wilderness. Like, it's just something that they just did. And, I mean, I personally don't understand it, so. But, uh, so, George Marshall and then uh, Armitage ended up leading the advance guard while Captain Applin brought up the rear. So, the way they arranged this column was that they had to soldiers and most importantly the maxim guns at the very front and the rear of the column now this meant that all the people in the middle who were pretty much all civilians were completely unprotected so naturally all those people started dropping like flies when the ashanti started sniping the column so uh they did manage to actually receive some relief though when it started raining leaving the ashanti matchup muskets ineffective so and if you're not familiar uh so the, the ashanti were using these matchlock muskets, which basically meant that you had to actually like light a little match, this like slow burning match, and then once that would get to kind of like the powder, like you were lower, lower into the powder, and then you know the gun would go off. So these are pretty primitive guns, but so but they could be effective as we saw. So now on the twenty fifth though of June, the force finally managed to arrive at Fort Inquado with the Ashanti army hard on their heels. Uh, George Marshall shortly thereafter died of his wounds upon reaching the fort. So, uh, a few days later, Hodgson was finally relieved of duty and left on the boat with the rest of the survivors of the column. So, the guy that started the war is getting the peace out. You know, classic. While everybody else has to deal with, you know, the fallout of his mistakes. So, meanwhile, though, General James, uh, or General Sir James Willocks, again, you gotta love these 19th century names, led a force of as a men to Kamasi to relieve the defenders of the fort. While on the march, Willocks attacked several forts belonging to allies of the Ashanti. Uh, these are guys named uh, the Ko, Kofu, yes, and was repulsed with heavy losses. The Ashanti also managed to engage his forces using guerrilla tactics as he was marching, so they were kind of slowly whittling down his force as well. But uh, finally, on the, 20, on the 15th of July, 1900, the Stockade Kamasi was relieved by Willock's column, and they were just two days away from surrendering. They were about to run out of food, so they got there just in time. Now, Wilkes left a uh, relief force at Kamasi as he was escorting the sick and injured back to the coast. And shortly after the column left the city, he immediately heard gunshots as the Ashanti once more attacked the city's garrison. So, yeah, things still not going great for the British. Um, the column arrived at the town of uh, Bekwai on July 19th. And shortly thereafter, Lieutenant Colonel Moreland arrived with reinforcements from Nigeria and attacked the forts of uh, Kokofu three days later with 800 men, surprising the Ashanti as scaring their force. Uh, thereafter, Willis managed to dispatch flying columns to pacify the rest of the region, and a resistance by the Ashanti is gradually beginning to crumble as kind of the onslaught of British soldiers and supplies started streaming in. 
Uh, Scudder kind of resistance continued, but by January 1901, it largely subsided, bringing the War of the Golden Stool to an end. So, uh, in conclusion, the Ashanti were formally annexed as a colony within the British Empire at the end of the war, although they pretty much continued to function with a lot of autonomy, and oftentimes they just flat out ignored the requests of British colonial officials anyway, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And uh, Queen Mother Ya Asentua and the King of Ko. Foku were exiled to the Seashell Islands along with 32 other chiefs that supported the rebellion. I will eventually get this name right if we ever have to talk about him again. <laughs> so, now, you might ask, what happened to Hodgson? Did he, like, were there any sort of consequences at all for his actions? Of course not. So, Hodgson was removed as the governor of the Gold Coast and served as the governor of Barbados from 1901 to 1904, and then as the governor of British Guiana from 1904 to 1901. So, was he a good governor of these places? You, you already know the answer to that. So, in 1905, as the governor of British uh, Guiana, he convinced sugar plantation owners to reverse the wage increases of the plantation owners that they had just implemented. Uh, he basically thought that an increase in wages would, quote, cause trouble among the workers. So, this guy, he just can't stop being a prick, I guess. So, it's led to several days of striking and then rioting and looting which didn't subside until troops were brought in and several hundred of the protesters were arrested or flogged. And there were no wage increases either. So, now, the British continued, though, to search the jungles of Ashanti land for their golden stool until 1921. They never found it. <laughs> so just literally, they searched the jungles for fucking 20 years and absolutely did not find it. Now, literally a few days after the British stopped searching, a team of day laborers on a railroad found the stool by accident. <laughs> they stripped it of its old ornaments, and then Ashanti court sentenced them to death for this act, but the British government intervened and exiled them in instead. I mean, you really, you cannot write this shit. Like, the British are searching for this fucking golden stool for 20 years, and then a few days after they give up, some random-ass day laborers managed to find it. And as for them being exiled, I honestly think that that's probably the best decision for them, because you know if they'd actually, you know, like, just been released into Ashanti society, it probably would not have lasted a day, so... Now, a few days later, or a few years later, in 1824, King Prempeh I was restored to the throne of Ashanti land. Now, fast forward to July 1st, 1960, Ghana gained, it, gained its independence from Britain. Now, to this day, Ashanti land enjoys special status in the country of Ghana. Kind of an, it kind of has a semi-autonomous independent status with the country. So, that is the fifth uh, Anglo-Ashanti War, also known as the War of the Golden Stool. So, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Have a great day. Peace.